you'll turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Job 26. Uh, I did not have a chance to find out what page that was on, uh, but Job is right before Psalms, uh, so in the, the Bible's in the rows, kind of just a little left of the middle, um, and uh, feel free to follow along. So Job 26. Then Job answered and said, How have you helped him who has no power? How have you saved the arm that has no strength? How have you counseled him who has no wisdom and plentifully declared sound knowledge? With whose help have you uttered words and whose breath has come out from you? The dead tremble under the waters and their inhabitants. Sheol is naked before God and Abaddon has no covering. He stretches out the north over the void and hangs the earth on nothing. He binds up the waters in his thick clouds and the cloud is not split open under them covers the face of the full moon and spreads over it his cloud. He has inscribed a circle on the face of the waters at the boundary between light and darkness. The pillars of heaven tremble and are astounded at his rebuke. By his power he stilled the sea, by his understanding he shattered Rahab. By his wind the heavens were made fair, his hand pierced the fleeing serpent. Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways." How small a whisper do we hear of him, but the thunder of his power, who can understand? Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Father, open our eyes that we may see. Lord, our ears that they would hear, our hearts that they would be soft. Make your word run swiftly through this place, that you would be glorified and that we would find our joy and our rest and hope in you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Lord Acton, a British historian and moralist of the late 19th and early 20th century, stated these words. Most of you will, will know them. Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Is this true? Does power corrupt? It's a question that people have asked perhaps as long as questions have been asked. Harvard Business Review addressed this a number of years ago, and their basic answer was, well, maybe a bit of a cop-out, because their answer was, it depends. But they did write that there is a rich array of empirical studies suggesting that people do take advantage of their power in both large and small ways. They're more apt to be rude. They're more likely to cheat. People driving expensive cars are less likely to stop for pedestrians, so just watch as you cross the street. For example, and in a series of lab experiments, upper-class individuals tended to lie more during a negotiation and cheat to increase their chance to win a prize. Now, does any of that surprise you? It doesn't me, and it shouldn't to you. We are all sinners, and when we have power, I think quite often we feel a, a bit more free reign to sin and feel like we can get away with it. But power doesn't universally necessitate corruption. It doesn't. There is one who is powerful. In fact, who is all powerful, and yet there is not even the slightest hint of corruption in him. This morning, we come to the next attribute of God from the Shorter Catechism, question four, and I'm going to give you time, although it's up there, so you're going to cheat a little bit here. So what is God? Let's say it together. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable 
in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. So today, we look at power. And taking my cue from how the Puritans often address these ideas, the way we are going to approach this is quite simple. We will look at the doctrine that is deduced from the Scriptures, from, from Job as well as many other Scriptures, and then we will look at how this fuels our devotion, uh, as the, the Puritans would say, the, the use of the doctrine. And so in doing this, I, I hope that we dig into how God's power truly does make a difference in our lives. I don't think we, we consider that enough on how God's power actually makes a difference in our lives. So let's start in Job. Briefly, the, the context of the chapter 26 is, uh, well, for those of you who don't know, Job is a book that addresses human suffering, and in that it also tells us a great deal about who God is, about our sovereign God, our good, just, and powerful God. Job was a man who was tested mightily. He endured a great deal, lost his children, had loathsome sores all over his body, and yet when that happened, he did not charge God with wrongdoing nor sin with his words. Now, most of the book is a dialogue between Job and, and what they say are his three friends with a fourth one coming. They don't always act the most friendly at times in the book. And it, it finishes with the Lord answering Job's complaint and then Job, in humility, repenting of his doubt and his questioning of God and God's goodness and justice and sovereignty in many ways. Now, for our purposes this morning, chapter 26 speaks wonderfully to God's power. It follows a speech from Bildad, one of the friends, where Bildad actually addressed the power of God and the dominion of God, that, that no man can be right before God. In fact, he, he called man a maggot and a worm. Um, it actually wasn't the most comforting of speeches from Bildad, and in this chapter, Job acknowledges that. If you look at, at verse 2, he says, "'How have you helped him who has no power? How have you saved the arm that has no strength?' He's like, "'You didn't say anything that helped me.'" Then from verse 5 on, Job waxes beautifully about God. Now, I'm not going to hit it all. I'm just going to look at a couple highlights so that we can get in to our uh, idea of the, the power of God. So just some highlights. Look at verse 7. It says, He stretches out the north over the void and hangs the earth on nothing. Now think about this for a second. Uh, many of you have, seen, have maybe helped your kids or you've done it yourself, and you've built a scale model of our solar system. Okay, you've used those styrofoam balls, you've got the big styrofoam ball for the sun and all these other styrofoam balls, and every planet, every single one of them that you build hangs on something, doesn't it? You have to put it on this little wire piece or something like that. You have to hang up a styrofoam ball that weighs basically nothing. And God has hung the universe on nothing. He doesn't need to hang it on anything. He spoke the actual stars and planets into existence and they stay there. They're held there by the very word of his power. Job then continues to work through other displays of God's power. He talks about the water being held in the clouds, which still stuns me. If you're ever in a plane and you fly through the clouds that, that look like rain clouds and you actually make it through, you're not like deluged with, you know, like a, somebody just dumped a tub on you or something like that. The fact that the water stays there, that stuns me. I'm not a scientist. I have no idea how that really works, but it's amazing that it does. 
Then we read in verse 12 of God stilling the sea. That should amaze us too. How many of you have ever jumped in a pool, like cannonballed as big as you possibly could, into a pool, got out and said, be calm, and the water stopped? None of us. None of us, but God has. Christ has stilled the sea. Now look at verse 14. Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? This is such a beautiful summary. He's basically saying, this is like the fringes. This is the, the tassels on the, 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 the last part of the robe of God's ways. This is just the fringes. What we hear of him, it's, it's just a whisper. What we know, it's just a small portion. They speak loudly for us, but they are so little compared to what could actually be said, and they're not even close to what our minds could conceive that he could do, which isn't even close to what an infinite God can actually do. Let's move into the doctrine, this doctrine of the power of God, and let's start by defining the power of God. Thomas Vincent, one of the Puritans, defined it this way, the power of God is his is his essential property whereby he can do all things. So Genesis 17:1, I am the Almighty God. Many of you know the, the Hebrew El Shaddai. That is the Almighty, the powerful God. We, we often call this attribute omnipotence. God is omnipotent. He, he's omnipotent in all of this. Now, God's power is not the same as his authority. It's not the same as his authority in which, in which God exercises dominion. His power, rather, is his strength to act. It's his strength to act. This power is often talked about in two ways, uh, and, and I think you'll be able to follow this. It, um, first, there's absolute power, and then there's ordinate power. So absolute and ordinate power. Now, in essence, absolute power is the idea that God is able to do all things that are possible to be done, Okay? the ability to do all things that are possible to be done, while ordinate power is the power that God exercises in doing what He has decreed to do or what He has ordained to do, therefore ordinate power. So they're not really separate or distinct powers. Ordinate is part of absolute. And we see this, you can actually see this in Matthew 26, verses 53 and 54. This is Jesus saying, do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and He will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? So He's saying, don't you think that God absolutely has the power, has the ability to send twelve legions of angels to take me off this cross, to stop this whole thing, but that the Scriptures would be fulfilled? The ordinate power it's not happening. It's possible. There's an ability to do that, but it's not happening so that the Scriptures would be fulfilled. The exercise of God's power is limited by His immutable decrees. You see, the actual representation or the actual exercise of God's power is not actually the full representation of the limits of His power, what we would call His absolute power. Now, with this, we must remember, and, and I might have a couple extra negatives in here, and hopefully you can follow along with what I say. Just because God has absolute power 
that does not mean that there are not things that still cannot be done. Everybody got that exactly right, I'm sure, right? So just because God has absolute power, that doesn't mean that there are not things that still cannot be done. Charnock rightly observed, and I think this helps, the impossibility of God's doing some things is no infringing of his almightiness, but rather a strengthening of it. It is granted that some things God cannot do, or rather as Aquinas and others, it is better to say such things cannot be done than to say that God cannot do them, to remove all kind of imputation or reflection of weakness on God, and because the reason of the impossibility of those things is in the nature of the things themselves. So what would be some things that are impossible to be done? Well, anything that would imply a contradiction. God cannot be and not be, or can be and cannot be at the same time. God cannot deny himself. Further, God cannot do anything that would mar his holiness or goodness, anything that would be against the perfection of his nature. And and he can't, as we've already stated, do anything against his will. Nobody can strong-arm God and make him do something that he has not ordained. Okay? So it's not necessarily saying, like, he's incapable, but he doesn't do it because it would be against who he is. But even as we have just thought about God not being able to do certain things, we still have to remember that his power is infinite. Okay? He can create well more than we know, and he has. <laughs> there are probably still creatures in the depths of, of the ocean that we have never seen. He could have created well more than he did. We cannot properly conceive of the innumerable possibilities of what God could have done or was able to do. How could we think that our finite minds could even come close to conceiving of the things possible that God could have produced? But even as we consider all the possibilities, one thing that that can do is we can get caught up into, oh, well, what about this or this or this or this? The reality is, is God has revealed himself to us. And the things he has revealed to us are things that we are responsible for. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children that we may do them. So what he has revealed, what he has given to us, what he has shown, that we are responsible for. In his perfect and infinite wisdom, he has given us what he has. He has made known to us what he will, and it is wonderful and glorious. But now let's, let, let's maybe explore some of the, the realms in which we see the power of God on display. Let's start in the beginning with creation, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created, and he created out of nothing, the the Latin ex nihilo, out of nothing. There was nothing before God. Everything that we see, and even the stuff that we cannot see, is a result of his creation. Now, we might have heard that so many times that we're just, it just kind of blows right by it, but that should astound us every single time we think about it. It really should, that everything was spoken into creation. We, we all need material to create. 
We, we all need it. We need tools. But God? Nope. <laughs> he doesn't. He can speak, and it comes into existence. Psalm 33, 9, For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. He sustains all. Hebrews 1, 3, I, I alluded to this earlier. Uh, speaking of Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He upholds the universe by his word. I can barely make my dog stay with my word, and he upholds the universe. That's amazing. But then there's the whole scope of redemption as a place where we see the power of God. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of, his, of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You, you might read through that and go, where's it talk about power? Well, he gave life to the dead, to the spiritually dead. He in his power took us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the domain, into the kingdom of his beloved Son. That requires power. And if we back up a chapter in, in Ephesians, listen starting to, uh, with verse 16 of chapter 1. Paul says this, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Okay, so he wants us to understand things that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Okay? So already he just says, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? Now listen, according to, so this is in reference to and in accord with the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So do you hear what's going on there? The, the working of his great might, the, 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 the power that raised Christ from the dead, that same power, according to that power, is at work in us as believers. He not only saves us from our sins, from spiritual and eternal death, he grows us in the likeness of Christ by his immense power. This immeasurably great power, an infinite, eternal, and unchangeable power is at work in the lives of all believers. And not only that, but God keeps and preserves His people. The verses from which our church got its name, 1 Peter 1, 3-5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who, for you, who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So God not only saves us, but he preserves his people by his great power. He doesn't just start it with power and just go, you know what, I'm tired. I'm done with you folks. You got to deal with it yourself. 
Oh, He preserves us by His great power. He keeps us. And it is in redemption as well that we see God's power on display in Christ. Ephesians alluded to that, but Romans 1.4, I love that the, what, it's, what Paul writes, that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. The resurrection displayed, put on full display for all to see the power of God. Now, there are certainly more places where we could see the power of God, and and I know there's much more that could be said about the nature of His power this morning. But I want to make sure that we have time to consider um, how and why this all matters to us. What's the usefulness of this truth, of this doctrine? How does this aid your and, and my devotion to the Lord? Now, one area where this truth ought to aid our lives, and this might not be the first thing you think of, but is in giving us a right fear of the Lord. When we consider the power of God, it should aid us in fearing the Lord properly, a a reverent fear, knowing that He is the Almighty. And not, not only is He the Almighty, but He's the Almighty who condescended to make Himself known to us. We ought not treat the Lord lightly. When the people of Israel crossed over the Jordan and entered into the promised land, and they crossed over on dry land, they set up stones of remembrance. They set up stones of remembrance, one, because we're all really prone to forget, and they know human nature, that we are prone to forget, so they need these reminders that they can see to remember. And in Joshua 4, it says this, Joshua said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know, Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over. So that, so there's purpose, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty or powerful, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. You see the power, the might of the hand of the Lord, so that you would fear Him. It ought to direct our hearts and our minds to fear, to awe. This is not a cowering, paralyzing fear but one that frees us to rest in God. It it frees us to trust Him, to worship Him. It's a fear that teaches and reminds us that we are creatures and He's the Creator, that we are finite and He is infinite. I don't think we often enough consider His power, particularly in His wrath against sin. We take our sin lightly. We looked at this um, probably in August, Psalm 90. Um, or actually, no, when we looked at eternal, um, Psalm 90, verse 11, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? You know, even understanding His power and His wrath should lead us to fear. Yet in another psalm, the focus is not on the power of His anger and wrath, but actually on His love. Psalm 61, 11, and 12, once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. 
Now, I'm willing to bet that the first thing on your to-do list in the morning is not meditate on the power of God. It's probably grab your phone and see what's going on today. But I dare say that meditating on the power of God should be there, should be something that we do, because when we stop meditating on who God is, we tend to forget His power, and then we fail to believe that He is actually able. Thomas Watson, who worked out some great uses of this doctrine, he, he flat out, his first, one of his first uses was that those who do not believe in the power of God, and I think he meant in, a, in an active, consistent way, that we didn't, you know, not that we didn't confess that the Lord is God, but that in some sense we're almost practical atheists in regard to the power of God. So that those who didn't believe in the power of God, well, they or, or we ought to be reproved. We ought to be reproved. You see, we, we, we say that we don't doubt God's power. We believe, we, we say we believe in the resurrection. We believe in what he has done through Christ. We believe in the salvation that he's given to us. But in the day-to-day, it's not really there. And, and, and we, you know, we, so we, we say that we don't doubt his power, but maybe what we say is, well, we're just not sure it's his will. But, but really, it's, it's God's power that we question in the long run. Jeremiah 32, 27, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Do we believe that? He just said, is anything too hard for me? And when we do that, our, our lives, as Watson said, stagger through unbelief as if the arm of God's power were shrunk and he could not help in desperate cases. Psalm 78, verses 17 through 19, recounting some of the issues with the people of Israel. It says, Yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? Questioning God's power. Could, could he, can he actually provide for us? I mean, literally, we just crossed the Red Sea. We, we watched the, 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 the armies of Egypt drowned in the Red Sea. But can he actually give us food? We laugh, but we do the same thing all the time. Oh, how we question God's power. You know, we could think about Mar- Martha doubting Christ's power in regard to Lazarus. John eleven thirty nine. 39. Jesus said, take away the stone. Okay, Lazarus had died, and Jesus comes and says, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, <laughs> by, by this time there will be an odor. For it's been, he's been dead four days. She's right, she's right about that. There will be an odor, probably. But she's essentially saying that if Jesus had been there earlier, you know, he probably could have done something. But now, with this odor of the rolling away the stone, she's not sure he can take care of all the stuff that needs to be taken care of. Can he really, can he really handle all that's involved, all that needs to be done at this point? Because it's, it's been four days. the one who holds the universe by the word of his power. Can he get past four days? Quite simply, if you haven't picked up on it, it's not good to deny God's power. 
And though we may say very much that we believe in it, how often do we first look to God in our need rather than going to some secondary object? Like, our bank account's fine. We'll be okay. I got friends. They'll help take care of me. I've even got a church that'll help take care. Or I'm strong enough. I can handle this. What do we actually, what do, what do we practically trust in more? And so when we, when we turn to things other than God's power, I think what we're doing in a lot of ways is building muscle memory to trust in the wrong things. You start trusting here and here and here, and when something goes bad, what do you turn to? You turn to that rather than to God who has the power. But you know, on another level, I think we show a lack of trust in God's power when we take a different course of action than what He has clearly laid out for us in Scripture. We doubt His power. So think about this, and I've heard people say this, I need to get a divorce because God wants me to be happy and my spouse doesn't make me happy. There's been no infidelity, nothing else. I just want to be happy. That's doubting God's power to, to rescue the marriage, to work through it. It's selfishness. There's a lot of issues there. Single person pursuing more in a relationship on their, or on their own than they should. That's denying God's power to sustain. When we cheat or lie, we deny God's power. When we say, He can't change me, this is who I am, when it's contrary to His revealed will, we deny His power. It's not going to change, no. It's denying His power. And if we continue down a path of denying His power, we need to understand that we are on a dangerous road to hardening our hearts. There are warnings in Scripture for a reason. They are there for us to take heed of. If we continue down a path of denying His power, we are dangerously on that road to hardening our hearts. If our eyes are set too much on this world and our circumstances, hardening is a real danger. We read from Psalm 95 for the call to worship earlier. The rest of Psalm 95 is this, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts, as at Meribah or on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. We need to take that seriously. Let's move towards trust. Let's, 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 let's see where we're denying His power. Confess and turn. But here's the point I really want us to get to this morning um, I, that I want us to take to heart. It's for those who, as the Puritans would say, have an interest in God. The idea that, that, that for, it's for those who have repented of their sin and rebellion and have placed their faith in God. Here's what I want you to know. His power is for you. Like, if you don't remember anything else, 
Know this, that as a believer, one who has an interest in God, who's repented and believed, his power is for you. Consider that in regards to your sin. How many of you have, you struggle with sin and you think, I, I can't beat this. This is so hard. Listen to Watson. The strong God can conquer thy strong corruption. Though sin be too hard for thee, yet not for him. He can soften hard hearts and quicken the dead. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Genesis 18, 14. Set God's power on work by faith and prayer. Think about this. In your weakness, consider how God's power is made perfect. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Let me just flip there. Just so I get the whole thing right. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So in your weakness, know his power is made perfect. In your difficulties, he can provide. Just read not long ago in my Bible reading, the the widow whose oil was multiplied in 2 Kings 4 so she could pay off her debts. In your pain in your body, consider the power of the resurrection. God may not fix it here, but you will have a glorious body. In the church, consider that this is Christ's church. It is His bride, and He has the power and the will to make sure that the gates of hell shall never prevail against His bride. His power is for His people. Rest in that power. Hear the words of Romans 8, 31 and 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What can we say to all of this? God is for us. Who can be against us? That is not a platitude. That is a truth. That is an ironclad promise of God. We started this message considering the famous Lord Acton quote about absolute power corrupting. And it may in humans. But, well, no human has absolute power anyways, but power does tend to corrupt in humans. But power has not corrupted our Lord. And it never can and it never will because it's, it's an essential part of His nature and so is His holiness. He is infinitely, eternally, and unchangeably wise and holy and just and good and true and so much more. So let me leave you with this. Just very simple. Work to grow in your trust and rest in the power of God. Read His Word. Meditate on His power. 
Maybe you need to set up a couple stones of remembrance in your house to remind you of God's work. That's part of why we come every Sunday. Because throughout the week, the world is knocking down our trust in God's power. And this is a place to be built back up in that. So learn to rest in His power. Meditate on God and His Word. He has shown over and over again that His power is at work for His children. He showed it most clearly in the cross and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. So folks, let us learn to rest in His power. Amen. Let's pray. Father, We pray that you would grow us in you. That through the cross and the resurrection of Christ, that that would be that catalyst to to propel us into greater trust in who you are. And don't want the danger of just focusing in on your power. But Lord, it is important for us to see that you are almighty. There is nothing too hard for you. And Lord, so we have confidence to pray according to your will and to trust that you'll be at work. It may not be in our time. It may not be in our ways. But it will be infinitely wise and holy and just and true and powerful. Lord, teach us to rest in you for your glory and our good and joy. Amen.